Have you ever been called out on something? Someone just called you out. Um, I remember about, so Rachel was about four. She might have been close to five. And I was putting her to bed. And right before bedtime, she saw the Nutella jar in the pantry. And she said, Mom, can I please have some Nutella? And being the good mom that I am, I said, no way. You're about to go to bed. Like, you can't have Nutella. Most of you know that I absolutely love chocolate, specifically Nutella, and that has not been a hard thing to pass on to my kids. And so Rachel was, was pretty disappointed, but she listened to her mama, and she went to bed, and I tucked her in and did our whole nighttime routine, and then closed the door, and I walked back to the kitchen. I grabbed that jar of Nutella and the spoon, turned on the TV, and sat on the couch. Um, I thought I had just, you know, the evening now to myself. Well, as soon as I put the first spoonful in my mouth, I hear this, Mom, I need you. Now, if you ever had a spoonful of Nutella, um, it's not exactly the most graceful thing to eat. Like that, it's, it's, it's a creamy chocolate is what it is. And it gets all over your mouth and your teeth. And so quickly, I'm like, I'm coming. And I'm trying to get my mouth all cleaned up, wash my hands, just get rid of all the evidence. I look in the mirror before I go in there. I smile. I'm like, I'm good. There's no way she's going to know that I just had a spoonful of Nutella. And I go in there like, what do you need, baby? And she said, I just need a hug and a kiss from you, Mom. (laughs) And so I go over there and I lean over her. And before I could hug and kiss her, She, like, pushes me away, and she's like, Mom, you're eating Nutella. (laughs) And I didn't want to lie, so I'm like, "Um, what what do you mean I'm eating Nutella? And she pointed her little finger at me, and she said, I smell it. I smell it on you. And so I I I had to fess up. I had to confess, yes, I had been eating Nutella. And no, she could still not have any Nutella, which felt felt pretty rough. She did get a helping of Nutella for breakfast the next morning, which is not our norm. But she totally called me out on my hypocrisy there with the Nutella. We've been studying the life of David, and last week Micah spoke on the very difficult story of David and Bathsheba. He spoke of, uh, told the story of David staying home when he should have been with his army. He commanded Bathsheba to be brought to him, even though she was married, and when her husband was out fighting in David's army, where David should have been. And she gets pregnant, and to cover up um, his sin, he calls Uriah in from the army, and he tries to get him to go to his wife, but he doesn't, and so he ends up having her husband murdered to cover up his sin. And we, we talked about the story of David's abuse of power and the injustice that was present there. And so we pick up that story today, and David, up to his knowledge, has used his power and his privilege to completely Um, eliminate all foreseeable consequences of his behavior. And he's, he's gotten rid of the husband, he's made Bathsheba his wife, and now all is well. All seems, it seems as though he is unstoppable. 
So have you ever looked upon injustice and evil and thought and wondered, where is God? Where is God when all this is happening? All this injustice is happening. And, and today we continue the story and we see God intervening and we see God speaking out for justice. He speaks for justice. And so that's what we're going to look at today. So we're going to continue the story in 2 Samuel 12, verses 1 through 4. The Lord sent Nathan to David. And he, when he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. So he starts telling this story. Two men, one rich, one poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle. But the poor man had nothing except one ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food and drank from his cup and even slept in his arm. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep and cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. So God had seen what David had done. And so God sends Nathan to David to tell this story, this story of a wealthy man who has more than he needs and this poor man who only has one ewe lamb that he loves very dearly. And it's a story of blatant injustice. So when, when David hears it, there's no question. It's blatant injustice where the rich man steals the poor man's lamb for, to, to make this meal for his traveler. And when David hears this story, he reacts very strongly against the injustice. Continues in verse 5. It says, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Isn't it easy or easier, I should say, to see sin in someone else's life? to see injustice in someone else's life. And so when David is confronted with this story, he says, this is horrible. This man deserves to die. And then Nathan speaks up. Really, God, speaking through Nathan, speaks up. Nathan said to David, you are that man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. In speaking, Nathan takes the spotlight and he shines the spotlight on David's sin. David had tried so desperately to cover up what he had done. And, and Nathan just 
just uncovers it all and exposes it to the light. Compared to David's, uh, he compares David's actions to the actions of the rich man in the parable that he told, in the story that he told. And it is evident that David had done much, much worse than that rich man in the story. And so at this part of David's life, we learn something very important about God. God calls David out. Kind of like I got called out for my Nutella. A lot more seriously, God calls David out. He calls him on his sin. God doesn't let David just sweep his sin under the rug and hide the injustice of it. God does not sit idly by and watch. He sends Nathan to David to expose his sin. And I think this is really important um, to to understand and to talk about a little bit because God is a God of justice. And sometimes we, we forget that. God is a God of justice. And justice in the Bible is spoken of many, many times. Usually, when it's spoken of, um, it's spoken in relation to the most vulnerable in society. So there's four categories in the Old Testament, especially, that are brought up over and over. And in the Old Testament, in those times, it was the widows, the orphans, the immigrants, and the poor. And and God speaks about the importance of justice. The word for justice in Hebrew is mishpat. And mishpat can have two different meanings or two different connotations. One is the retributive justice, meaning the punitive justice, the the punishment for ungodliness. So um, in in that case, if you steal, then you would have to pay back that type of justice. The other justice is restorative justice. And restorative justice speaks more to the rehabilitation or the restoration of both the person who has been unjust and the victim of that injustice. And both these types of justice are in the Bible and spoken of. However, the majority of the justice spoken of in Scripture is restorative justice. God trying to restore what was broken. God trying to heal. God restoring that. Another interesting fact about about justice in the Bible is it's often paired um, with righteousness. So those two words are often paired together. In fact, the word for righteousness on occasion in Scripture is actually translated as justice. Um, So justice and righteousness go hand in hand. So righteousness being um, having right relationship. So right relationship between people, right relationship between humanity and, and God, and, and treating others with um, dignity and value, treating others equitably, because we are all created in the image of God. And I find it interesting that those two things are put hand in hand, because if you have righteousness, you don't really have a need for justice, right? Because if you do no wrong, then you wouldn't necessarily have to have to fix that or correct that. And then the goal of, of justice is to foster righteousness, is to turn away from injustice and to live righteously. And so God is described in Scripture as a God of justice with an emphasis on restorative 
justice. And so I wanted to read again a psalm that Andy read earlier. Psalm 196 says, But joyful are those who have the God of Israel as their helper, whose hope is in the Lord their God. He made heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He keeps every promise forever. He gives justice to the oppressed. And there's that word. He gives justice to the oppressed and food to the hungry. The Lord frees the prisoner. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are weighed down. The Lord loves the godly. The Lord protects the foreigner among us. He cares for the orphan and widows, but he frustrates the plans of the wicked. And we see in here this idea of restorative justice, that God is working towards healing. God is working towards reconciliation and restoration. God wants to bring hope and peace and connection to our lives. And it's interesting to me that when we speak of justice, justice has a very positive connotation, right? Like we, we all will probably say, hey, we want justice. We, that has a very positive connotation. And yet when we speak the word judgment or to judge, that kind of has a negative connotation. And, and some of that is just in part with, you know, the different nuances of the word and how we use the word. Um, but often when we think of judgment, either making judgment or receiving a judgment, we think of it as being uh, punitive. We think of it as the, the, the retributive type of justice. And I've been in churches and I've heard of churches that preach God's judgment in very destructive ways and that reduce faith to fearing punishment in trying to avoid God's punishment. And I don't think that's appropriate. I don't think that's a full understanding of what Scripture says about, judge, about judgment and justice. I'd like the definition of, of judgment, at least in part, in, in speaking of it here, judgment as the act of bringing about justice. So, so God judges to bring about justice. And again, that restorative justice. Because God's restorative justice and judgments abound in love and grace and hope. When God speaks, there's always that character, his character of love in those words. In fact, it's a little bit surprising, um, maybe to some of us, but scripture speaks of God's judgment as a cause for rejoicing as a cause for celebrating, which it, the way we speak of judgment, that wouldn't, be, that wouldn't necessarily be where we go. But going to Psalm 96, we're going to read verses 10 through 13. This is what it says about rejoicing. It says, Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is fully, the Lord reigns. The world is fully, full, firmly established and cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, let the sea resound in all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. 
Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes, he comes to judge the earth. Rejoice because he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. God judging the world, or in other words, God bringing justice to the world, is a cause to rejoice. Because God is not an angry God up there wanting to punish, but rather God is a just and holy God who loves humanity deeply. And he wants to make things right. He sees the injustice and he sees the hurt and it hurts him that we live in that kind of a world. And he wants to heal that hurt and restore loving relationships both between human, like people and people and between people and God. And so when God saw David's abuse of power, when God saw his injustice towards Bathsheba and Uriah, God sends Nathan to expose David's sin and to call him on it. And this is a really key moment for David. Like, what will he do when everything is uncovered? What will he do? How will he respond? How often, uh, how do we often respond when our sin is uncovered? Often, um, denial, anger, justification, blaming others kind of comes up, and David's done his fair share of that. But here, in this moment, David responds differently. And Scripture describes David's response before the Lord very simply. In verse 13, Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. David confesses. He stops trying to hide his sin or to cover it up. He owns it. He calls it what it is sin. And he says that to himself. He says that to Nathan. And he confesses it to God. I don't know how long that conversation went. That's all we get in this story, that one little sentence. You know, I wonder what else was said. I wonder how that moment transpired when everything came crashing down on him and, and he had to just own it. I wonder what that was like. Then in the rest of that verse, Nathan replies. says, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. And boy, that's hard. That's a hard part of the story. The, the prophet Nathan said that God had taken David's sin away. And yet... Though David wasn't going to die, there were still going to be consequences. And the child would not live. And sure enough, the story continues. The child gets sick. David pleads with God. He fasts and he prays. And a week later, the child dies. And this is a hard part of the story for me because it doesn't, it doesn't seem fair to me that the child should suffer. It doesn't seem fair to me that Bathsheba should suffer this though she had no control over what happened. 
So I don't fully understand why the story unfolds this way. I do see a principle in it that I think is very powerful um, in, in my life and maybe in yours, that sin has relational consequences. Sin has relational consequences. My sin rarely, if ever, just affects me. When I sin, it affects my family. It affects the people closest to me. It might even affect the people far from me. And sin always brings pain and hurt with it. And David's sin here had relational uh, consequences. So what does David do? In this moment, it all comes crashing down. He, he, he sees the consequences of his sin, and he repents. To repent means to change course, to turn. He repents. After his son dies, he gets up from his weeping and pleading, and he gets cleaned up. And the first thing he does is he goes into the house of the Lord, and he worships God. He prays, and he reorients his life around God, because for the last bit here, it's not been oriented around God. He, he reorients his heart and his mind to focus in on God. And once he's done that, from there, he goes back home to Bathsheba, and he comforts his wife. And boy, I wish I had more details on Bathsheba's side of the story, what it was like for her. I mean, I can imagine the devastation she felt when she was summoned by David. I can imagine the devastation she felt when David killed her husband. And then somehow from there, I mean, I, I can hardly imagine all the conversations that must have taken place for her to move from mourning Uriah, her husband, to then being David's wife. Somehow, in all that, though I, I don't know what it was like, I'm confident of this, that God met Bathsheba in her pain. God was there. God was present. And he met her in that pain. And God worked to heal and to comfort Bathsheba. Fast forward in the story, and Bathsheba has another child with David, and they name him Solomon, which Solomon comes from the word shalom, which means peace. So they are naming their son peace or peaceful. That's how you could translate that. And I, w I wonder what that meant to them. She was referring to peace between her and David, or that she was now experiencing peace, or peace between them and God. I don't know. But God sends Nathan again, and this time not to rebuke David, but to speak God's love to David. And Nathan goes and says, God says to name Solomon Jedidiah. And Jedidiah means loved by God. And I think it's so powerful that in this tragic story, as God as is working his restorative justice to heal and to restore what has been broken, God just outpours his love on them. And God cares for both Bathsheba and David in this moment. Restorative justice. I like that. I like the idea of God healing, of God restoring what is broken and bringing about justice. This is a crazy story, um, both last week and this week. Uh, 
crazy story, but I think we learn a lot from the characters in this story. And though this is a series on the life of David, um, David isn't the main character in this story. The main character is God. And so what do we learn about God in this story? God is a God of justice. And God is a God of, of restorative justice. He does confront abuses of power and injustice because that is not what he wants for his creation. He wants his people to live righteous lives, treating all people equitably and with dignity and value because we are all created equally in the image of God. And, and that is where our worth and our dignity comes from. If we take a step back from Scripture and take a step back from this, from this story and look at the Bible as a whole, from Genesis to Revelation, we see God working to restore peaceful, loving relationships between people and between himself and people. In, in Genesis, we see creation and God creating the Garden of Eden where there is perfect harmony and, and, and righteous relationships. And then that is broken, and sin enters, and sin destroys, and sin brings with it pain and hardship. And then we see, fast-forwarding a whole bunch, I know, uh, but we see the incarnation and the life of Jesus, God going to great lengths to restore the broken relationships, and God modeling what righteousness looks like, what love looks like. And then Jesus' death and his resurrection. Jesus taking on um, the retributive justice for our sake and then offering restorative justice in the form of forgiveness and healing and new life. And then at the very end in Revelation, we get a glimpse of when that process is all complete. Um, we get a glimpse of what it means to be made new, what it means to, to have no more sin and no more injustice and no more pain and to live in the presence of God without those things. And I'm, I'm struck in this story, looking at all of Scripture, how God's love is the motivator for all this. God's deep and profound love for his creation is what motivates him to come to us and to work to restore and heal us. There are three other characters in this story that I think we can learn from. And I think, in part, all of those three characters um, rep can re represent us. Certainly, they represent me. Like David, sometimes we act unjust, unjustly and we harm others. Like David, we sin. And I believe God calls us on our sin in different ways. And God exposes our sin not to punish us, put his finger in the wound, but he, he exposes it to restore, to bring about justice in our lives, to, to make things right, to heal, and to lead us onto a new path. And we are called to take a, po a posture of confession and repentance, trusting that God's love will transform us. So there's David, and then, and then there's Bathsheba. And like Bathsheba, I think sometimes we're hurt by sin, and we're hurt by injustice. And if you find yourself in that place right now, I just want to remind us that God does not abandon us in our pain. 
God walks with us right there when we are hurting. And in the outpouring of his love and grace, he heals, he strengthens, and he restores. It's not an easy journey, but he's right there with us, bringing about that restoration. And then like Nathan, sometimes God calls us to speak for justice, to speak out and expose the sin and the injustice that is around us, to join him in his work of bringing about restoration, to be a tool in God's hand as he makes things right, as he makes things new, as he heals and restores. So, so this story, though we think of scripture and we're looking at Genesis through Revelation, this story is not over. We know the ending, but it's not over. We are characters in the story of God's redemption and restorative justice. It's happening right now. Very pertinent things all around us in our lives. And at different points in our lives, we may be more like David, acting unjustly. We may be more like Bathsheba, having been wronged and hurt. Or we may be more like Nathan, where God is calling us to to stand up and to speak out against injustice and to speak loudly for justice. And sometimes, I think probably often in our lives, we're in all three of those positions at once in different circumstances in our lives. I have hope today because God is a God of justice, and he loves, and he will restore. This story makes me ask myself, and and I'd like some questions, and I'd like to ask you those questions too. How is God calling us to participate in his story of restorative justice today in our setting, in our life? How is God calling you to participate in this? Where in our lives do we need to confess sin openly to God and repent and choose a different path? Where in our lives do we need to bring our hurt and our pain to God and lay it before him and ask him to heal us and to transform us with his love? How And where in our lives is God calling us to speak up for justice, to speak for justice, especially in the lives of the marginalized in our community? You know, the the list, the Old Testament, the widows and the foreigners and the poor and the orphans, we could add to that list. Who, Who are those people in our society? And where is God calling us to speak out? I'm not going to answer those questions, just so you know. We all get to ask them and ask them in the context of God's love and God's hope, knowing that God does the heavy lifting. We just need to make ourselves available to him, and God will restore and heal. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for this story. As hard as it is to read the horrible things that happened, Lord, we thank you that we can see here that you are a God of justice, that you are a God of love, that you want to restore what is broken, that you care so deeply about us, that you want to create new life 
for us, God, a life of love, a life of peace, a life that is in harmony with you and with the people around us. And God, today, as, as we talk about some of these difficult topics, I just pray that you would reveal to us what is our part in, in this story. What is it that you want us to do as a part of your story of, of this restorative justice? Lord, teach us to listen and, and give us the courage to follow through when we hear your answer. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to leave us today with a benediction. May we openly confess our sin to God so that we may receive freedom and grace. May we bring our pain and hurt to God so that we can experience his healing and love. May we have the courage to be both bold and loving when God calls us to speak out for justice. And may we more fully know this God of justice and love. Have a great week.